Well, we've been working through this uh, life story of this man called Abraham. And uh, as we've been taking these steps, we're reminded, aren't we, that um, we're asking the question as we're going along, what does this life thousands of years ago have to say to us today? It's great for us to be able to understand a little bit of history, but that is not what the Word of God is all about. It's about, yes, being placed in history, but then speaking to us today. That's one of the things that makes the Bible unique amongst books, because it, it, it is not just a histor historical record. It's not just some uh, pithy sort of do-good ideas. It's way more than that. It's the re revelation of the living God into this world in a way which helps us to see how God's presence is not something which just happens at moments, but rather there is a continuous stream that places us in the history of God's dealing with this world, even this afternoon. You know, we've asked ourselves over these past few weeks, why was it that Abraham was in that particular place at that particular time and, and things worked out in an amazing way for him at that moment in time? Does that mean that he was just an example of God working in that way? Or might it be that that applies to you and me? Might it be that God deals with us in just that way? that we find ourselves in situations, we find ourselves in locations which might be surprising to us. You might be surprised this afternoon to find yourself in a church. I, I guess that some of us would. When we look back on life and we see how life has, has dealt with us, to actually find ourselves here might be a surprise to you. Is that just a series of coincidences or is God the kind of God who deals with us like that? We need to ask the question as we look at this this afternoon, and I think you know, that there are, all of this book is God's word to us, but as we go through it, we see that there are certain, I suppose you could call them almost, well, this is a mountain experience in another way, uh, that we can, we can see that there are dramatic moments, there are key moments in, in, in the way that God unfolds his word to us. I would say that this chapter is one of the most important moments in the life of this man, Abraham, and in us understanding what God is like. What is God like? We've spent this past week having an event of 23 years ago, 1989, Hillsborough, some of you weren't even born. Um, I remember it well, being a Liverpool supporter. I was there the year before, the previous year, 1988, was exactly the same match. Liverpool against Nottingham Forest, held at Sheffield, exactly the same match I was there the previous year. What happened the following year could have happened. We have had opened up to us over this past year, uh, over this past week, the most remarkable expose of authority being corrupt, haven't we? Now, here's the question. When there is power and when there is authority, can we always trust it? 
I think we've lived in this world, most of us, long enough to realize there is power and authority, and we were told in the Bible to pray for those in leadership over us, but we can't always trust it, can we? Now, here's the question, and here's the question that many people ask. Can I trust God? Can I trust you, God? How can I know that I can trust you? That is an absolutely foundational question in our understanding of what God is like. Can I trust you? This story, this account is all about that. God, can I trust you? Now, that question can be asked at pretty much any stage in life. We know that there are those of us who have been Christians for many years And you know as well as I do that there are events in life which hit hit us full on and we say, can I trust you? You might be a Christian of just a few weeks or days or months and you might might be seeing things going on in life and you think, well, oh, wow, what what, what am I doing? Uh, Can I trust this God? You might not be a believer in Jesus and you might be thinking, I'm about to take a big step because I'm becoming more and more convinced, but I'm asking the question, can I trust you, God? That is a, I love the fact that what we need to do is ask the big questions like that. Now, very often we find that kind of question, it's almost the hush-hush question, isn't it? You know, it's the one that's not, an, not asked because it seems a little bit heretical. It seems a little bit unorthodox. It's not the kind of thing that we really do. And, and I think what we need to do is ask just those kind of questions. God, can I trust you? Let's have a look at the text as it comes up on the screen. What we see here is God speaking to Abraham again. Read in verse 1, After this the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Here's God speaking again to him. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. The promise seemed empty to Abraham. Here, try and picture. He is utterly convinced. He knows that at this moment in time, it is God the Almighty, the Sovereign Lord, who is speaking to him. He admits that in his response. He says, Sovereign Lord. But he's asking exactly the key question. Just because you are sovereign, just because you are supremely powerful, how can I know that I can trust you? Because way back there, what you said to me was that I would have an heir. Right at the very beginning, as we started this journey, we realized that one of the key factors in the life of Abraham was that he was beginning to trust in God, and the promise God made was that you and your wife, Sarai, you're going to have a child, and that is going to be the heir and become a great kingdom. We're way down the line here. These are, old, these are an old couple, and it's not happened. <laughs> and so God says... I'm, I am this God. I am the one who is your great God. Don't be afraid, Abraham. Is this just empty words? I'm your shield, your very great reward. 
So what? So what if you were that? You made a promise back there, and right at this moment in time, it still hasn't been delivered. How can I know that even though I acknowledge that you are supremely powerful, how can I know that I can trust you? Then the word of the Lord. In in fact, as we read it, as we see this opening out, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Have you ever been in that experience away from the city, away from any kind of civilization? You're out in the countryside and you don't have any light pollution around you and you look up into the sky when it's a clear night. It is the most amazing scene, isn't it? You see stars that you didn't even know were there. They are there all the time. Every night they're there. You just don't see them because of light pollution. So you go out into, into the, the countryside where there's not a scrap of surface light, look up into the sky, and there are countless stars. And God says to him, that's how many, beyond that number, are going to be your offspring. That's how vast it is going to be. Look at what he says. Look at what Abraham's response is. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. That, that is one of the most important verses in the Bible. You want to know what Christian faith is all about? That's it. That is what Christian faith is all about. He believed God. He didn't do something. You think the Christian faith is about doing something. I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do the other. And then I'm going to be, what? Righteous. That's kind of a Bible word for saying good enough, acceptable. <laughs> That's righteous. So if I do all of these things, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be good enough, I'm going to be righteous. That verse says, how do we get right with God? We believe him. That's exactly what Abraham does. He looks up into the sky. He's an old man. He knows that the promise of God is that he's going to have an heir of his own flesh. And therefore, this Eliezer of Damascus isn't going to inherit uh, uh, his inheritance. And he says, I believe it. And that was counted to him as righteous, righteousness. Abraham, you are considered acceptable and righteous, not because you've done certain things, but because you've believed me. (laughs) What is it for you and me to be believers in Jesus? Real believers is to say, I believe it. Now, what does believing look like? Because the next little section is remarkable. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. He said to him, I am the Lord your God who brought you up brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. He says, now, okay, I believe you, God. (laughs) And God says, yes, I know. I'm the one who's already brought you out remarkably. And then he says, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? How can I know that I shall gain possession of it? The sequence of this conversation is remarkable, isn't it? It's already said he believed him. 
and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then he says, but how can I know? That sounds like he doesn't believe, doesn't it? But he does. It's just said, and he believes. Here's, here's one way that I think we can understand what's going on here. Um, what is it that allows you to trust what's been said? It's the credibility of, what, of the person that says it to you, isn't it? The credibility of somebody who can deliver something for you. Okay, so if you um, are sat in the house and somebody really close to you in your family says, um, do you want a cup of tea? And you say, yeah, I'll have a cup of tea. Thank you. That would be great. You don't, you don't say, um, okay, yes, but can you just write it down <laughs> just so that I know that you will deliver a cup of tea to me? Just let's confirm it. You just say, yeah, thank you. And the cup of tea arrives because there is a credibility. Now, let's imagine you go into Harrods. Huge amount of credibility there, isn't there? Huge amount of credibility. You buy something from Harrods, and it's not in stock. This is going out on the internet, and Harrods claim to always have something in stock. I apologize. It's just an illustration. <laughs> going to Harrods, it's, it's not in stock. You would be a fool to walk out of Harrods without a receipt to say that you've paid for it, that that's what you're going to get. Not because you don't trust them, because they have all of the credibility and all of the authority behind them, but you say, to, how do I know that you're going to deliver that to me? How do I know that you will do this for me? You are th the most reputable of retailers and even though your reputation is vast, how can I know? God, <laughs> God, I believe you. You are the most reputable of beings in the whole of the cosmos. But how can I know that you are going to do what you say? The next bit is amazing. Because God doesn't say, are you doubting me? God doesn't say, you... you don't you believe what I've said? You've just said I'm going to do it. You said you believed a minute ago. Are you saying, no, he doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to cut you a deal. That was a really carefully chosen set of words. I'm going to cut a deal with you. I'm going to cut a contract with you. Have you heard that phrase? I'm going to cut a contract with you. He tells Abraham, right, go out. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought them to him, and he cut them in half, apart from the birds, which he put on each side. It's a gory scene, isn't it? He takes these animals, and he cuts them in half, and he places them on each side like that. And as the day goes on, the birds... Birds of prey start to fly around out in the wilderness and he scatters them, protects this visible, tangible offering. Just cuts them in half there. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. 
Then the Lord said, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nations they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. There is the contract. There's the promise That's what God is saying. He's saying to Abraham at that moment in time, this is what I am promising. And there laid out in this dreadful darkness is a row of dead animals. And God cuts the contract. What's that all about? Have you ever, um, <laughs> do you remember as a kid, you make a promise to, to your best mate in the playground? What do you say? How do you make sure that they know that you're going to deliver? You say, cross my heart, hope to die. Do you remember that? You say, cross my heart, hope to die. What are you saying? I'm making you a promise. Now, <laughs> kids say some pretty wacky stuff when we actually analyze it as adults, don't they? I'm making you a promise such that if I don't deliver, I'm a dead person. That's what it means. You know, straight out the playground. Because straight out of the playground has been a contract, a contract idea that has been in existence for the whole of human history. There are blessings in terms of a promise. And there are curses if I don't deliver against that promise. Blessings and curses. I've said I'm going to do it. That's my promise. If I don't do it, there are curses if I don't deliver against it. Back in um, the ancient times, King Xerxes, who appears in the Bible actually, King Xerxes was at war. One um, One of his comrades, one of his close military aides, a man called Pythias, He asked that his son might be allowed to not go into battle. Xerxes was enraged that he had asked for this. He commanded that Pythias' son be taken, be killed, be cut in half, and his body laid at each side of the road. And then he commanded that the whole of his army march between the two parts of the body on the way to battle. Wow. What's he saying? King Xerxes is saying to his army, faithfulness, commitment, obedience to the commitment that you have made to me is what I demand of you. I make you walk between the dead so that you will commit to what you have said you will do. And if you don't do what you have said you will do, let you be like one of this, one of these. Let you be like this dead person. Pythias' son, cut in half, laid out on each side of the road. In other words, in the ancient world, when we cut a contract, we made it very visible. We did things tangible that made it look like we were acting out 
in an oral tradition, in a, in a tradition where not everybody was able to write so that you couldn't take a written contract, you would act out what your commitment was. So you would say, I will do this, and if I don't deliver against it, I will, you can consider be like that dead thing that we've just killed between us. Acting out things was a very normal part of life. You've, you've heard of the, f- the phrase blood brothers, haven't you? I think it was actually, a, was it a Willie Russell play? Blood brothers? What's it, what, what are blood brothers? Uh, take a knife to two thumbs, cut, so, cut uh, until the blood flows, and then bind the blood together. That was a tradition that actually took place, and I guess that some of you might have even done it. What is it all about? It's saying we, we mix our blood together to say that we are committed, we are as one. Why? Because we are acting out what we are committing to. That's exactly what God is doing here. He's saying to Abraham, right, here's my promise. We've just read it. It's going to be 400 years. You're going to be in exile and then you're going to be freed. You're going to be released. My people will be free. And we're going to act out the contract. We're going to act out the commitment. That's how, incidentally, there are some who would argue that, that this is exactly where the phrase cutting a deal comes from. Historically, the idea of cutting a deal, some would argue, comes from this tradition. The idea of cutting apart animals and acting out this commitment. So we've got these animals now laid out on the floor. We've got God speaking the terms of the contract. And then we've got the most amazing moment in the life of Abraham, arguably. Because what we next have is the sun setting when the sun had set and darkness had fallen. A smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Wow. What did we say earlier about Xerxes? His army had to walk between the dead body of Pythias. And if they didn't deliver, they would be like that. God is saying, God is saying, if I don't deliver, If I don't keep what I have committed, what I have promised, I am the one who you might consider dead. I am the one who is binding myself to this promise. I am the one with this flaming brazier that appears, a picture of purity, a picture of cleansing. That's what the the fire looks like. It's the presence of God. It's God saying in picture form, my holy presence is the one that is passing between those dead carcasses. I am the one who is committing to the promise. In every other occurrence of the ancient carcass rite in the ancient world, every other occurrence that we know, it is the weak that walk through. It is the weak that walk through the carcasses. So the king would come in, as King Xerxes did. He would stand above and he would say, I demand that you walk through and you keep the promise. 
the weak would have to walk through to prove obedience to the strong and commitment to the strong. And God reverses it and he says, there's my promise to you. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it remarkable that God would do that for Abraham? And that is exactly what God delivered. Abraham did die a good old age. 400 years of exile resulted in his people being freed. We see that promise of God. Is that where it ends? Well, there are two things that I would say that helps us to understand exactly what is going on here. First thing we would say is this. That's what God is like. He's a God who keeps his promise. That's what it's all about. Abraham didn't even see this promise fulfilled. He was dead. Hundreds of years later, this promise was fulfilled. But you and me, we can see it. We can see what God did. He did fulfill his promise. He did deliver his people. He did exactly what he said. He did not end up being the God who had failed. I think there's something else. Because normally, in the cutting of a contract between two, both would walk through. In the case of a king, the weak would walk through. In the case of two, both would walk through. In fact, we see it. It's referred to. This particular ceremony is referred to again in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 34 and verse 18, we read this. Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled terms of the covenant they made with me, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. <laughs> so here in Jeremiah, there are those who have made a commitment to God and they've walked between the pieces and then they failed to keep that commitment. Jeremiah chapter 34 verse 18 and God says, I will hold them to account for failing to keep the, the commitment. I will hold them to account. I will consider them to be like the dead carcass. Because most commitments, it would both would be walking through. God has made demands of Abraham. He says, this is what will happen, and this is what you've got to do, and this is what I will deliver. We've looked at those in previous weeks. And now God is the only one who walks between the pieces. What he's saying there is, Abraham, if I fail... You can consider me dead. But if you fail, you can consider me dead. Only one walks through. Is that, is that what God's like? 2,000 years later, there's another moment where there's profound darkness. There's another moment where God walks amongst the dead. There's another moment on Mount Moriah, Calvary, where God says, I will be the bearer of the failure. I will walk the covenant promise on your behalf. You can count me dead if I've failed 
or if you failed. That's the stepping stone that God puts in place for Abraham at this moment in time. And then later on in time, Jesus enters onto the scene. And he reenacts this in the most remarkable way, the most clear and powerful way, because he says, here's the promise. This is what I demand of you. I demand righteousness, and you have failed. What would the natural outcome be? I demand that you walk amongst the dead. I demand that you walk between the carcasses and become as one of them, dead. But God says, but I will walk through. I will walk through. I will stand there in this. Do you see what we see in in the verses here? Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. There's another moment when Jesus enters into a deep sleep, a sleep of death, three days, and a dreadful darkness covers the land when God the Father blocks out the sight to His Son, when there is a tremendous cosmic separation of mystery between Father and Son, and where what happens One gets cut off. One gets cut off. Why? Because God keeps His promises. He is a promise-keeping God. He is a deliverer of covenants. And you know the amazing thing is, He knows that you and I are not deliverers of covenants. He knows that you and I are not promise-keepers. We're promise failures. We're covenant breakers. He knows that. Are you frightened of admitting that to God? He knows it already. He's not shocked by that. He knows that we're promise-keeping failures. He knows that we're covenant-keeping breakers. He knows exactly what we are like. And he says this, Although it would be natural for me to demand that both of us walk through that and I'll keep my side of the bargain and you keep your side of the bargain, I am the kind of God who loves you so much and I will keep my promise. I will uphold the righteousness that I demand, but I will do it by me walking in your place. I'll die. I'll be the one who walks amongst the dead. Back to our first question. How can I know? How can I know that I can trust you? A week where we've been shocked by what power and authority can do and to twist it to such corruption. How can I know that you won't do that? How can I know that you will deliver? I know that you will deliver because you have delivered already. In a timeless sense, Jesus has kept the covenant. He stepped in when you and I will fail. 
And remarkably and amazingly, that promise stands a moment in history that spans backwards and forwards. It spans backwards right the way to Abraham and earlier on and right the way forwards to you and me today and to everybody who goes on beyond. There is the promise. And I've delivered against it, God says. I have timelessly died. I have timelessly walked amongst the dead. I have timelessly been cut off. I have timelessly been within darkness. In a moment in time, one sacrifice that ensures righteousness for the failures. It's great news, isn't it? It's a God worth trusting. When all authority around us fails, here is a God that we can trust. Here is an authority that we can believe in. 